2: Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. Unfortunately, this weekend I'm in Rome for the G20 and after that I'm off to Glasgow for the COP26, which is the United Nations-led climate conference that we've all been building up to with great expectation over the last few weeks. So sadly, I can't bring you a show this week. I'm on the move, but I, I want to basically hand my space to my incredible colleagues, uh, Graham and Adam and Lenore, the boss, of course, who are going to present to you one episode of this excellent series that we've had this week called Australia versus the Climate. Regular listeners of the show will know how important we think climate change is. Uh, if you like the cut of the jib of this one episode, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the whole series from the start because you're going to learn heaps about how we came to this pretty pass in terms of Australia's position in global negotiations around climate and what, if anything, might need to happen in order to change that. So listen up.
3: This week, Scott Morrison finally released what he said was a plan to reach net zero emissions by 2050. It's not about the if or when, it's about the how. And the world has to start focusing
0: on the how. And our Australian way focuses on the how. And I think that's the leadership that the world debate on. The plan,
3: called the Australian way, was hailed by some as marking an end to the climate wars. And they've done a heroic thing, the Australians, in getting in getting
1: to that commitment.
3: But as the Prime Minister heads to a crucial climate meeting in Glasgow, what has Australia actually said
2: it will do? And is it enough... I think the Australian way is probably a very accurate piece of branding for the government's roadmap to 2050. So we turn up late, we're underdone, uh, we're lackadaisical, uh, we lack urgency, we lack focus, we lack seriousness. It's actually worse than empty
0: slogans, I think. It's empty slogans covering up inaction and regressive action.
3: I'm Graham Redfern, and this is Australia versus the Climate. The shocking story of how Australia's behaviour across decades has made it a climate change outcast. Part 5 The Australian Way. Okay, so this episode, we've brought a few of us together to talk about this net zero plan and what it means ahead of Glasgow. We've got Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia, Catherine Murphy, political editor, and Adam Morton, climate and environment editor. Hi, everybody. Hi, Graham. Hello. Hello. Okay, Murph, it's been a big week. Tell us how it started for you.
2: Yeah, Sunday, that is when the National Party will be meeting to discuss whether they will back any proposal that comes from Cabinet in terms of adopting net zero emissions target by 2050. I was at home on Sunday, this most recent Sunday, assuming that the net zero commitment would clear the Nationals' party room. That was my working assumption based on intel at the end of last week. On Sunday morning, uh, people started ringing me and saying this is right on the brink, this is right on the edge. This one,
3: uh, as leader, is going to be absolutely seminal. Um, It's complex. Um, We've got to try and make sure we
2: look do the very best as the nationals, as a group, for regional people. I think... It's possible that the Nats, in fact, will vote as a collective not to support the net zero target. And these are sensible people. These are people who don't panic.
3: Senior nationals are threatening to derail Scott Morrison's 2050
2: net zero emissions plan after it was discussed. And I thought, right. (laughs) So uh, I engaged uh, and uh, came into work, obviously, in the middle of the day, made a lot of calls, people still very nervous whether or not this would this would clear the Nationals party room or not This literally went down to the wire. This literally could have blown the government sky high. It was a matter of a couple of votes in the National Party room on Sunday.
1: In an historic decision, the Nationals have agreed to a net zero emissions target by 2050. The breakthrough came a short time ago in a more than two-hour meeting of the party's MPs and Senators this afternoon.
2: That landed this commitment to net zero.
1: We are in support of a
3: process going forward that would uh, go towards the 2050 emissions
2: target. Obviously, that's dependent upon what we do. Now, I don't think we can lose sight of that, and part of the reason that Morrison is being congratulated for landing net zero is that he very nearly didn't.
3: We've had this going on for months, though, with Scott Morrison saying we want to get to net zero Preferably by 2050. What's happened here is we just lost the word preferably. But the that's struggle to even agree with that. I mean, it's just nuts. It's a mad time. But anyway, right. So there is a plan. Scott Morrison held it up for the cameras. Adam, just what's in it?
1: Yeah, well, let's cover the basics. Scott Morrison and Angus Taylor, the Emissions Reduction Minister, both got up at a press conference in Parliament on Tuesday and said Australia wouldn't be told by others how to address the climate crisis, that we'd be doing it the Australian way with their plan, Plan with a capital P. And then they ran through a slideshow but there were no new policies, not one. Morrison has repeatedly said he would not set a target if he didn't tell Australians how it could be reached, but there's nothing in the document that does that really. There's no roadmap, no new money at this point. There was a graph at the start of the slideshow that showed 70% of the cut in emissions out to 2050 coming from technology, which is either being developed or yet to be discovered. Apparently, 40% of this, um, so more than half of the full chunk of technology would be thanks to the Morrison government's policy, the Technology Investment Roadmap. It'd be 15% from global changes in technology and another 15% from tech breakthroughs that are so futuristic, we don't even know about them yet. And the rest is supposed to come from offsets, which means a hell of a lot more trees and better soil to draw carbon from the atmosphere and bizarrely a huge amount of carbon capture and storage, which doesn't yet work at scale and that we rely on these to offset the continued burning of fossil fuels. Nothing was said about accelerating existing technology and policy that could make much deeper cuts in emissions now. Technology development will be crucial, of course, but the government's not saying much more than technology will develop in a way to get us there, to net zero, and it's not expecting the big cuts to come until much later, closer to 2050, which is the opposite of what the scientific consensus says we have to do and how they come up with all this isn't clear. The government has delayed the release of any modelling that sets out how they arrived at it. Adam, could could this work? Could the
3: Australian way actually deliver to us a
1: a credible pathway to net zero? No, no, not on this document. No, No, there's not something here to build on to make it happen, right? When it was released, I was in touch with people who have been following this sort of stuff for decades, and they were sending me messages um, in the hours afterwards. And these are often fairly, you know, um, reserved people uh, saying things like, this is one of the worst things, one of the worst documents I've ever seen. It's an absolute bloody joke. And I don't remember people responding quite so strongly before, and we've been obviously through a lot in climate and Australian politics over the last decade-plus period. The whole thing is just a deliberate delaying exercise, and I don't really find a good word to say about it. What did you think of it, Lenore?
0: I think it's a cynical political solution to try to get out of dealing with one of the most consequential things uh, facing governments in the world, and in that way I think it's unconscionable.
3: Murph, I've seen some commentary around uh, sort of congratulating uh, Scott Morrison. Uh, for ending the climate wars or for landing a net zero policy, but yet this is so thin. Why is it such a tiny victory being celebrated like that?
2: Well, I think the tiny victory sort of is being celebrated in, in the context of the climate wars, but I think this is a very important point, Graham. even though we all agree, having looked at this document, that there's no there there. The thing about net zero that's positive is is that it is a position from which you could disarm. It's too little, way too late, but it's a start and it's something that we could work back from. Sadly, The coalition at this point is not interested in completely disarming on the climate wars. Uh, Electorally, you know, we've seen every federal election really uh, since uh, Tony Abbott won in 2013 framed around the weaponisation of this issue in key parts of the country in seats basically that determine the outcome of governments. So sadly I think we've sort of got a truce which then leads to another series of armaments and, and another conflict around ambition for 2030, and that's a great shame. I mean,
0: I absolutely agree with you, Murph, that net zero by 2050 is an important indicator, it's an important sort of signpost to the country. So it's not nothing at all, it is actually a positive thing. But, you know, for better or for worse, Malcolm Turnbull, for instance, tried to end the climate wars within the coalition with something like a credible policy by actually trying to solve the problem. He lost his job, but he tried. I mean, Scott Morrison's trying to end the climate wars by pretending to act, by having this signpost and then not having anything else to get there, by pretending that he's got a policy when he doesn't. And I think he's actually banking on the complexities being too much for many commentators. I think he's banking on the predilection of many people to view this discussion only through the prism of Australian political horse races or that He can pretend to act in such a way that if Labor actually finds the courage of its convictions and promises some actual action, they can dust off their same old rhetoric, their same old weaponisation, the $100 lamb roast, the whole script. I think they're banking on Australian voters not caring enough or not caring enough to sort through the detail. And that's just such a cynical way to try to end the climate wars. And I can't really predict if it's going to work or not. I think it's really a stretch this time because voters do care. It really does defy belief that he could try to end the climate wars by sloganeering without any
1: actual policy to do it. It's amazing. If I understand correctly, the Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago was trying to advocate for an increased 2030 target that he could take to the Glasgow summit. And would be able to make a case that we have projections showing we'll have deeper cuts and we're going to act on them. And, you know, here's the reason you should think we're a good global citizen. And if I'm reading this correctly, Murph, he's now pivoting to saying not only will we not increase our target now, but we will not before the next election, creating the ludicrous situation where... He's making the case, we're going to do much better than this, but I just won't commit to actually doing it. So how does the international audience, let alone voters, interpret that? Maybe that's not where it lands. and it's, it's being made up day to day and week to week. But it feels like it's being geared now for him to attack Labor for doing something he wanted to do just a week or two ago.
2: Obviously, uh, the Prime Minister is infinitely adaptable in terms of strategy, both war-gamed and found strategy. The thing that I can tell you that is different in the last 12 months of uh, the discussions that I have with members of, of the Liberal Party and some members of the National Party too, that is, that is quite different from the conversations that I was having with those same people, even two or three years ago, is that these guys have tumbled to the fact that this transition is something that we will either do or will be done to us. And that's the first time in my reporting career with this lot of Libs and gnats, honourable exceptions given, where the penny has dropped. They get it. I'm
0: sure that's true, Murph, and that is a shift, but what we're seeing in front of us is a prime minister confronted with this problem who whips out a slogan in response to it. And I think what those liberal and national party uh, MPs who can see that this is a real problem and that they really need to do something, what they really need to understand is that by having a, policy with this little credibility they're actually a hindrance to things that might happen despite them and around them and to give one example you know there's a calculation in the australian way that 10 to 20% of the emissions reductions out to 2050 might come from international or domestic offsets and for a while i sort of puzzled about that because there's no government money to buy offsets and there's no policy to force industries or emitters to reduce their emissions and require them to buy offsets. But there is a voluntary market. And then I was thinking, okay, lots of big companies have their own net zero targets and of their own volition are looking out at the offsets market to buy offsets to meet targets that they have set for themselves. But those investors want to make sure they're investing in offsets in a country that has a credible policy, that has a credible system of accrediting offsets. And so, The way the coalition has approached this might actually act as a disincentive to investment that would have flowed to Australia, that would have aided Australia to reduce its emissions absent any government policy. And in a way, it's kind of worse than policies in the past, not just because there's nothing new in there, but because actually there's also uh, scattered through pieces of action, pieces of policies where the federal government could actually be making things worse. I mean, obviously the plan for 2050 is very dust stuff, but we all know that Glasgow is actually going to be about what we're doing now in the near term by 2030. Um, over that time frame, the government's hiding behind what listeners to this podcast will have heard about sort of dodgy accounting um, measures and also policies that other levels of government and other actors have put in place. So they're saying, you know, we're going to get further than the inadequate target that Tony Abbott set for 2030, in part because of those accounting tricks and in part because of things that the state governments have done or things that investors and business have done. But at almost every point, that means anything that is actually happening, anything tangible is happening in spite of the federal government, not because of it. And if you look at those um, emissions projections, and you look at electricity generation, which is obviously you know a very significant source of emissions, they're now projected to ha- more than half between 2005 and 2030, which looks good. But then you look at it, and it's mainly because of policies of previous governments or state governments. And then you look at what is being factored in by this government. Their efforts—they're factoring in. The Kurri Kurri gas power station, which even the New South Wales minister says isn't necessary and which will be a big source of emissions well past 2030. They're factoring in the massive Beedaloo Basin project, which they're also subsidising, which will be a massive source of emissions uh, through 2030 and beyond. So they're hiding behind other people's actions. They're not doing anything new. So it's actually worse than empty slogans. I think it's empty slogans covering up inaction
3: and regressive action. Up next, we head to Glasgow.
2: So
0: I'll be taking this plan to COP26 for our target to achieve net zero by 2050. The actions of Australia speak louder than the words of others. There'll be lots of words in Glasgow.
3: So by the time this episode comes out, Murph, you're going to be on your way to Europe. You'll be on your way to Rome. I think it's the G20 first and then Glasgow uh, with the Prime Minister. So apart from freezing cold weather, what will... Scott Morrison face when he gets to Scotland?
2: What am I expecting? Uh, Well, we'll expect that the Prime Minister will make a contribution during the period of the summit where leaders deliver national statements. The problem for the Prime Minister is uh, that obviously there is a gap between Where Australia is at, talking about a mid-century commitment, and where most of the rest of the world is at, which is that this is a summit around uh, ambition in this decade through to 2030. So obviously, there will be a measurable gap, I think, between the Australian Prime Minister and other world leaders, because the Brits, the host of this event, have really wanted to focus, along with Joe Biden, on ratcheting up ambition for 2030 targets. And uh, the Prime Minister, or more pertinently, the Nationals have ruled out any shift in Australia's position on 2030. So it'll be interesting. But then I think in the mind of the Prime Minister, I don't think necessarily the Prime Minister will mind if there is a measurable gap between himself and on 2050 and the rest of the world on 2030. In terms of dealing with the coalition's base, dealing with the restive right flank of Australian politics in Queensland at the next federal election, uh, the government is very concerned about whether or not Clive Palmer is friend or foe in the upcoming contest. Uh, the, The right wing in terms of One Nation and other players have been emboldened by the pandemic, vaccine mandates and other things that MPs from regional parts of Australia tell me are red hot in their home states. So if there is in fact a measurable distance between the Prime Minister and the rest of the world on 2030, that plays back into the Prime Minister's narrative, domestic narrative, which is, look, we're being utterly respectable on climate change. We've adopted this mid-century commitment. We absolutely understand there's a transition in play, but we have haven't lost our minds we haven't gone all crazy green so don't you worry about that the good folks of glasden and and other associated locations So
3: the UK as hosts and UN officials have been saying that they want countries and leaders to come with front-loaded targets, clearly reference to the improved 2030 targets. Scott Morrison has said he won't be doing that, but it will instead just take the projection. And the best the projection does is 30% cuts uh, by 2030 or 35% with some technology magic. Now, even the 35% is way behind the US's refresh target of 50 to 52. It's well behind the EU's target of 51 percent. Lenore, will Scott Morrison sort of be able to ride out those differences? Well, I don't think so. And I don't think he should be able to. I mean, 2030
0: is what Glasgow is about. When we signed on to the Paris Agreement, we agreed along with all the other countries that we would revise our target in five years' time and ratchet it up. That is all around an increased ambition for our 2030 target. That's why everyone's going to Glasgow. This whole 2050 discussion we've had is really a great big smoke screen in terms of the international deliberations. So, uh, no, I don't think saying, oh, look, you know, we've redone our numbers and we're 2% better than we thought we were going to be in 2030 so it's all good
3: is going to cut the mustard at all and nor should it. Adam, what else is going to be on the table in Glasgow for Morrison and, and for the
1: rest of the world? Well, emissions cuts are the big thing. The Brits have been out there trying to get ramped up commitments since the last COP in Madrid two years ago. There are people within the British government who are really serious and respected internationally who have been working hard and had some success, right? The G7, all the, um, the big developed countries have now got really significant compared to where they were a little while ago, 2030 emissions reduction targets. And uh, there was a story this week that said the uh, long-held push to try and get climate financing, this is the big pool of money that goes to help the most vulnerable countries, is likely to hit the target of $100 billion a year through governments and private sources within the next couple of years. So they've had some traction. I think that we should acknowledge that. But we are still a long, long, long way from where we need to be on emissions cuts, you know, described as mitigation. And I think the real focus at Glasgow will be how to address that gap. It's not going to be addressed in the next fortnight, but, you know, there is a UN report out um, on the emissions gap this week that says at the moment with commitments we're on track to 2.7 degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels of heating, and that's a disastrous outcome if we stick on that.
0: And I do think that's what we've got to sort of pull this debate back to. I mean, the the political shenanigans is one thing and the international shenanigans is another. But the bottom line is if countries don't have sufficient commitments in their 2030 targets, then we are going to overshoot the degrees of warming that every credible scientist says are bearable for the global ecosystems. I mean, it's not, this isn't a theoretical sort of discussion. It's not a political parlor game. It's actually, existentially serious.
1: Yeah. And and to that end, there's no big global deal on the table to be signed like in Paris or that failed in Copenhagen. But Glasgow is a major meeting. Leaders don't turn up all the time to these meetings, more than 100 leaders are going with the hope that there would be really significant progress and that Brits have targeted some sort of short-term goals, wanting to get agreements on phasing out coal by 2030 for the rich and 2040 for the developing, phasing out petrol and diesel cars. There's a global push on to cut methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas by 30%. There are a couple of others. I think it's worth saying that Australia has signed up to none of these.
0: And we're not set up To sign up to any
1: of them. Yeah. So that, that stuff will be discussed a lot. But where Australia fits in that well, I mean, as Murph says... You know, maybe the politics works to be on the outer, but I think, well, if that's the case, Morrison's going to get what he wants, I suspect. I think we're going to hear a lot of (laughs) condemnation, Murph.
2: One point of interest, and and I'm just putting this out there because I actually don't know the answer to the question, as we're recording now, just on the climate finance point, uh, obviously Australia will do nothing at all, even remotely helpful on coal. Forget that. It's just not going to happen. Uh, In terms of the climate financing, uh, the Prime Minister famously dumped the green climate fund on Alan Jones. Uh, We since then have sort of pursued this uh, regional strategy of climate financing with the Pacific. Um, I suspect that there will be more to say from Australia at COP on financing to some degree. My gut feeling is that we'll be more in the zone of uh, technology partnerships and dollars through technology partnerships than through the conventional green climate fund Model. Also, I believe the Brits uh, are are telling uh, COP participants that. as long as the dollars turn up, we're not going to be absolutely religious about what form the dollars are in, what we want are the dollars. So if uh, the Prime Minister goes with a bunch of tech agreements with developing economies or with the region, with the Indo-Pacific or whatever else, and there are actually dollars attached, that's one thing where perhaps we'll have something to say there. But obviously, I wouldn't want to
1: suggest that this is peace in our time or the cure for cancer. It's neither of those things. And I guess one of the questions about the technology deals is how much are they about promoting gas and selling that into, you know, connecting into Asia or are they actually about green solutions?
2: Yes, sell sell gas and, uh, and get beautiful offsets. Yes, I know. Anyway, look, all will be revealed as they say in the classics.
3: The noises from some of our UK Guardian colleagues have, have in the stories that we've written leading up to this has been that, that there are now some nerves that the UK's efforts to get countries to come in with really hard, firm pledges that are front-loaded, it's just not been happening. And, and when we think about what that means and what hangs on these conferences, Glasgow being one. Paris being another, Copenhagen, Kyoto, are our sort of collective futures for sort of our Pacific neighbours. It's about their future existence for Australia's glorious, diverse ecosystems from the reef uh, to our eucalypt forests. It's ecosystem collapse for our people living in our cities. Can we still go out in summer and not choke on bushfire fumes? Um, How many more species will we lose? that have been evolving for millions of years and maybe get snuffed out over five or ten years of awful bushfire weather. So... For Angus Taylor, I think, and for Scott Morrison, it's about tech deals. It's about coming away as unscathed as possible. But uh, I, I don't think it's over-egging it to say that a lot of scientists that will be there will see it as an existential thing and that, that this, these deals should have been happening decades ago. We're already way behind. And that's why this stuff really matters. And that's why, that's why this series was just so important for us to make.
2: And, and there's one other thing I'd add to that. We are really good in this country at structural adjustment. We are really good at this stuff. We've done this over decades. We have done it in a way that has improved people's prosperity, opportunity, uh, you know, capacity, basically, to participate in an economy as well as a society. We are supposed to be good at this stuff. We have demonstrated for decades that we are good at this stuff. Except
0: on this issue. Exactly. On this one issue, government after government has tried and failed. And I guess what I was trying to say at the beginning is the thing that is upsetting me most about this last policy is this government isn't even trying. Yeah. They're not even trying. Not seriously.
1: And if I could just add on that, one of the things we've looked at in this series is the role Australia plays globally, the ramifications that can have. We have a real impact. We can have a real impact Mm -hmm. with the position we hold. It's impossible to measure, but we are still saying, you know, yeah, yeah, we're acting, but what about China? But what about India? What about other countries? And that's to some extent, right. They really need to act. China is... A big unanswered question here. You know, they won't be represented at leadership level, we don't think in Glasgow. And it's not clear yet what they'll promise to do by 2030, in addition to what they've already said they'll do. But we still feel like we are in a position where we're expecting the developing world and these emerging economies to act before us. That was never the way this was supposed to work. There's no sense of... Responsibility? moral responsibility but you know historic responsibility on a range of fronts. Um, I don't know if that's the Australian way or not. Um, Lenore uh, you've been really
3: central in this series but how has it been for you hearing sort of three decades of climate politics crunched together like this?
0: Hmm. Uh, In many ways it has felt dispiriting and exhausting but As always, it's too important to be dispirited and Along the way, we have spoken to many people of goodwill and resolve, politicians and business people and scientists and analysts and economists and ordinary folk who will continue to push and lobby and work for Australia to shift in the way that we have to. I mean, I started writing about this in 1992 at the first Rio Earth Summit and in the ensuing years I have got old, I've had kids, I've got grandkids and it does sometimes feel like all of the work that have been spoken and all of the reports written and read and everything else has not been for much. It feels like that until you think about the alternative and then I think you write some more or maybe you make another podcast.
3: Adam, this was a big gig for us and you We had to pull together a history going back to the mid-90s to today.
1: Have you learned things? I've learned a lot, actually, yeah. This project has been a real opportunity to put what is happening now into some perspective. When you look at it through a long-term lens like we have over the past week, it's an extraordinary story how Australia has not handled this issue.
3: One moment that really stuck with me, actually, and I think it cuts to maybe even what's going to be happening in Glasgow, was the moment when Penny Wong described being in a room with the world's leaders, the world's most powerful people, and she said she could never have imagined being in a room like that. And she said that this was in Copenhagen. She said that these people could do anything if they wanted to. And it comes down to that, I think, is that it's about political will. And if you've got plenty of that, then... Some of the other problems are easily solved. This is Australia versus the climate. I really hope you enjoyed this series. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Graham Redfern. Australia vs. the Climate was reported and produced by me and Adam Morton. The series producer is Jake Malcolm. Karishma Lothria and Joe Koning did additional production and Joe also did the sound design. Mixing by Camilla Hannan. Beck Pridham and Thomas Phillips assisted with production. Executive producers are Adam Morton, Miles Martignoni, and Gabrielle Jackson.